Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the story of this story this week. I should have done last week in honor, in honor of the 4th of July, but I read the book and it was kind of long and I don't always have a ton of time to read. And so it took me a while. So I'm doing it this week. It's about the American sniper. I bet you've heard of him. His name's Chris Kyle and he was a sniper, an American sniper. So I'm going to tell you his story. I'm Reagan Snyder, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to go ahead and put a little bit of a warning on this one because there are a couple graphic parts. A little bit gory. Uh, in my personal opinion, it's not too terrible, but I also like true crime. So, and I'm assuming you do too, because I do a lot of true crime on here. But if you don't, fair warning. Christopher Scott Kyle was born in Odessa, Texas on April 8th, 1974 to his parents, Deborah and Wayne. And he had one younger brother, Jeff, who was four, young, four years younger than him. His dad, Wayne, worked for AT&T, and Deborah was a stay-at-home mom. She stayed home with her boys, and I'm sure she went crazy because boys are insane, especially when they're toddlers. The Kyle family was very religious. They are very Christian, and they would go to church every Sunday. Wayne was a deacon, and Deborah taught Sunday school, and they also loved hunting. They're just kind of your... They're kind of your... When you think of Texans, it was the Kyle family. Chris and his brother Jeff grew up hunting. And in fact, Chris got his first rifle when he was eight years old. And they would hunt deer and pheasant and quail. <sighs> that reminds me of a story from when I was younger. There is this quail family and they ran into my house. And I, I was like, what do I do? What do I do? Oh my gosh. Ah, there's quails in here. Oh my gosh. What are they doing here? And they finally ran out, but one little baby quail got stuck behind our grandfather clock. So I had to pull it out and I, I caught him and I had him in my hands and he was so cute. He was just a little baby. And I was like, oh my gosh, the mom is going to murder him because I touched him. And I, to this day, I don't know if that's true or not, but it was true in my head back then. And so I was like, I'm your mom now, like the creep that I am. And I took care of this little quail and I went on Google and I researched how to take care of a baby quail and I went to Petco and I got everything I needed, but he died anyway. And I cried a lot. It was, it was kind of weird how much I cried anyway. I digress. The Kyle family had a whole bunch of cattle. They raised cattle and they had up to 150 of them at a time. And after school and on the weekends, Chris and Jeff had chores, cool chores, like feeding and looking after horses, so cool, and inspecting fences, which sounds kind of, kind of boring. I don't know what that is, but it sounds kind of boring. After graduating high school in 1992, Chris went to Tarleton State University in Texas from 1992 to 1994, where he studied ranch and range management, because of course he did. He's a cowboy. While Chris was in college, he also was a professional bronco rider. 
And during his freshman year of college, he had a really bad experience. The Bronco that he was on flipped over on him in the chute, which is like the little cage that they're in before they let him out. And because because of the way that the horse came down on on Chris, they couldn't open the chute. So they had to pull the horse back over Chris and he still had one foot in the stirrup. And so he was dragged and he was kicked so hard that he lost consciousness. And so he was life flighted to the hospital and they had to put pins in his wrist and they treated a dislocated shoulder, broken ribs. And did you know that organs could be bruised? Because they can. I didn't know that. Chris had a bruised lung and kidney and it just all sounds really painful. And this injury meant that his rodeo career was over. So he started working as a ranch hand for a guy named David Landrum. It was 10,000 acres of land. It, and that, that's a lot of land. It, but it was beautiful. There were beautiful hills and creeks and it was just open. And Chris loved it. He loved working as a ranch hand for this guy. He stayed in the bunkhouse and it just wasn't real comfortable. It was pretty small and the walls were not insulated. So Chris would have to sleep with his clothes on to stay warm because like even with the gas stove, they would turn the gas stove on high and they would run electric heaters and it still wasn't enough to keep him warm. He made $400 a month riding tractors and planting wheat for the cattle and he loved it. He was having a blast. But Chris had an interest in the military. It was kind of on the back burner. And after his second year of college, Chris followed through with this interest of joining the military, the Marines specifically. And in 1996, he went into this military recruiting office. And while he was there, there was a U.S. Navy recruiter who convinced him to try for the SEALs instead. And by the time he left this recruitment office, he was dead set on becoming a SEAL. He wanted it so bad. But that dream came to a screeching halt because he was rejected. And it was because of the stupid rodeo injury because he had pins in his arm. So he begged and he pleaded and he just realized it was never going to happen for him. So he had to move on from that. And he settled into the idea of just making a career out of ranching. But then in early 1998, he got a call and it was a recruiter and they wanted him to become a Navy SEAL after all. So this meant he had to go to Bud's. So he started Bud's training in in, not Colorado, in Coronado, California. Big difference. Coronado, California is south, 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 San Diego. And it's stunning and the weather's amazing. Anyway, BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition and SEAL, and SEAL stands for Sea, Air, and Land, in case you didn't know. Training starts with indoctrination, which was designed to introduce candidates to what will be required of them. And then it's followed by three phases, which are physical training, diving, and land warfare. SEAL's training is notoriously difficult, like really, really difficult. And the program is designed to push you beyond your limits to prepare you for the extreme mental and physical challenges that come with SEAL missions. And they go through something called called Hell Week. And it's called Hell Week for a reason because it is 
living hell just reading about it, just hearing about it, I would be scream crying the entire time. They're low on sleep, first of all. I, I ugly cry sometimes on low sleep. I just, I can't handle it. So they'd sleep like four hours a night. They couldn't have caffeine. They would be really hungry, cold, sandy, wet. And within five days in that week, they would run more than 200 miles. Every day they did 20 hours of physical training. So that sounds awful. Very uncomfortable. Very awful. Because it's so intense, The they have these safety protocols and daily checkups that they do just to get through the week and make sure that everybody's okay. But on rare occasions, people die. People have died during Hell Week. That's how intense it is. Part of Bud's training is testing your comfort levels in the water And so they would go into a pool with scuba gear and weights on, and they would have to crawl across the bottom of the pool. And the trainers would do these shark attacks where they pulled off their scuba gear. They would take away their weights to confuse their buoyancy. And it was just, I mean, you can imagine how fast and confusing and crazy it is. And if they can't put it all back together and get to safety while they're still underwater, they're out. And on top of this, they have to remain calm. So that's... That's a task. Chris remembers being dropped off in the ocean one time, seven miles away from the nearest beach and having to swim back. In phase two of BUDS, which is the diving phase, Chris had, he had this infection. He had to go on this dive and this infection caused a perforation in his eardrums when he resurfaced because of the pressure. Ow. Ow. Sounds so painful. But this injury rolled him back and he ended up having to join a class later. And that kind of left him in a limbo during that kind of interim time. But in March 2001, he graduated along with 23 others out of his class, his starting class of 233. There were 23 that made it through training. Chris moved on to SIL qualification training from May to August of 2001, and he hoped, obviously, he hoped he would get assigned to his first pick, which was SEAL Team 3. And to explain that, there were six teams. Three of them were on the East Coast, and the other three were on the West Coast, and Team 3 fell into the West Coast. It was in Coronado, California, where he did his training. Assignment day was pretty low profile. It was just kind of, they just handed out papers. They were brought into a room and and they were handed papers with their orders on it. And Chris got what he hoped for. He was assigned to SEAL Team 3. And in April of 2001, he was getting ready for training. He hadn't started it yet. He was on this team and he was just trying to enjoy his, his week off. It was like the week before and he was just like, okay, I just need to relax and enjoy the calm before the storm because he was getting ready to deal to, to dive into seal life and he knew his life would never be the same. He was out one night with his friends when he walked into a club in San Diego and he saw this woman talking to one of his friends and he just thought she was very beautiful. Her name was Taya. She was a pharmaceutical drug rep and she was originally from Oregon She went to college in Wisconsin, and then she moved out to Long Beach, which is a little bit north of San Diego, a couple years prior. And 
Chris thought she was beautiful, but as he got to know her, he realized that on top of that, she was really smart and funny. She was, he felt like she could keep up with him, and so he was into her. And Taya felt that Chris had been an answer to her prayers. She hadn't formed any solid relationship since moving to Long Beach, and her dating life just kind of sucked. It wasn't going anywhere fast. She didn't like her job, and so she was just kind of in this crappy rut. She actually hadn't planned on going out that night. One of her girlfriends called and talked her into driving down to San Diego. And the night before, she she prayed that she could just meet a nice guy. And then she met Chris, and Chris was a nice guy. He would go on to shoot a lot of people, but they were bad guys, though. So I, I guess that's okay. Better them than innocent people. When she met Chris and discovered that he was a SEAL, she was like, eh. she thought she had him figured out. She figured he was arrogant and self-centered and glory-seeking, but she kept talking to him, and they ended up staying until last call at that bar, and she couldn't help but feel attracted to him. He was all hard and muscly, and he smelled good, so she gave him a little kiss on the neck, and they exchanged numbers, and they left Together, they walked each other out to the parking lot, and then she puked everywhere. She puked her guts up from all the scotch that she'd been drinking. But that didn't stop Chris from being into her, and they started dating. One night, he had slept over at her apartment, and he woke up to Taya yelling at him to wake up and come look at the TV. The World Trade Center was smoking from a plane crashing into it. And then suddenly another plane plowed through the second tower. So Chris reaches for his phone and he saw a bunch of messages that he needed to get back to base ASAP. So he he leaves, he gets in his car, and he's flying down the freeway so fast that he got pulled over in San Juan Capistrano. And the cop asked him why he was going so fast. And he explained, I'm in the military, I've just been recalled, and the cop asked what branch he was in, and he told him he was a SEAL. And so the officer closed his ticket book and said, I will take you to the city line, go get some payback. The SEALs began training to deal with the places Islamic terrorists were most likely to be located, and this training included being waterboarded and gassed. They got word that they would be shipping out to Kuwait, and before they deployed, Chris and Taya decided to get married. And he felt like it was a logical decision because she's the one he wanted to spend his life with. He knew that. He he knew that she was the one that he loved, but he didn't think the marriage would last because there's a 95% divorce rate in the SEALs. The night before his wedding, he was hazed by his platoon, and they rushed him cuffed him to a chair and every time he was found guilty of an offense he had to take a drink of jack and coke followed by a shot of jack and at some point they stripped him down they put ice in his undies and then he passed out then they spray painted him and they drew playboy bunnies on his chest on and back with a marker and they taped him to a spine board completely he's completely naked at this point and they took him outside into the snow where they left him until he regained some consciousness. They finally gave him an IV and they took him to his motel room. Still taped to the, he's still taped to the spine board, but, you know, at least he's getting hydration. The next morning, Taya helped him wash, wash as much paint off as she could before the ceremony. They went and they got married 
and in total, he was given three days off for his wedding and his honeymoon before he had to go back to work. So war is on the horizon, and Taya's really struggling with anxiety. Her new husband is going to a scary place during a scary time, so she would take her mind off things by reading it every night until she fell asleep. But there was one day that Chris had to go out on a helicopter exercise, and while she was watching the news, it reported that a helicopter had gone down near the border, and it was filled with special forces soldiers, and there were no survivors. And so, of course, Taya's immediately jumping to conclusions. She's thinking, oh my gosh, my husband's dead. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And, I mean, she didn't hear from him all day, even after he promised to call. So, of course, she's thinking he's dead. But she's trying to keep it together. And around 1 a.m., she started to crack. And then the phone rang. And it was him. And he was just cheerful. Cheerful as ever. And Taya lost it. She just started bawling. All that pent-up anxiety and all that just she let it out and so she knew after that experience that she had to stop watching the news she she just could not handle it on march 20th of 2003 they're on en route to the mission that they'd been preparing for in operation iraqi freedom was underway in iraq chris's duties were to raid houses secure oil fields and fight small groups of insurgents They were ordered to wear full mop gear, which stands for mission-oriented protective posture, and it was really, really uncomfy, but it would protect them. It would even protect them against chemical attacks. The chopper pilots began shooting off decoy flares to confuse the Iraqis, and streams of bullets headed towards them, but they managed to miss them, thankfully. As they landed, the the ramp dropped, and the driver hit the gas, and Chris was locked and loaded and ready to fire as they sped down this ramp, but then they careened onto the softer and they got stuck. So they exited their vehicles and they took their positions and the Iraqi started firing at them. Chris returned fire and he had plenty of targets. In fact, he had too many of them. They were heavily outnumbered and so they began to call in air support. The Iraqis realized that they were screwed pretty much and they tried to flee. But that just made them easier to see, and by morning, the battle was over. They went into a house that was nearly ruined by the fight to get a few hours of sleep, and they went outside to check the perimeter of the oil fields, and there were dead bodies everywhere. And then, just then, they heard something, so they turned to see that the Iraqis had fired a mortar round, and they thought that they were being gassed. So they ran as fast as they could to get to the gates, But the British guards had slammed them them shut and they wouldn't open it. But thankfully, the smoke that they were seeing was smoke and they weren't being gassed. At the end of the day, their CO didn't want to risk any casualties, even if that meant not doing their job properly. So they just returned to base, but they were really feeling dejected. It was a lot all at once. And this particular mission caused a lot of PTSD in Chris because, I mean, he saw all sorts of things, including dead bodies everywhere and, you know, people being killed. It's just not normal. It's not human nature. There was one day that they were sent to a house that they heard might have U.S. prisoners. In the basement, they set up lights and they started digging. And before long, Chris saw a pant leg and then he saw the body 
and it was a freshly buried American soldier in the army. The man next to him was a Marine, and Chris's brother, Jeff, had just joined the Marines. So Chris thought for sure this was him. He had this sick feeling in his stomach as he dug him up. He was sure it was his brother. And as he dug, he silently prayed. And when he got to the face and I did to identify his brother, it wasn't him. And so he breathed a sigh of relief. But there were many men who had been killed and buried in that basement. And he was convinced that one of them was his brother. But it wasn't. And it was very sad that these lives were lost. And Chris was sad at the lives lost. But he was very relieved that none of them were his brother. One day they came to this small building compound at the edge of town and started taking fire. And, I mean, Chris is just killing people off. It's like Modern Warfare, that video game, but for real. In real life. And so Chris is killing these Iraqis. And it seemed like every for every one that he shot, four or five more would appear. So there were a ton of them. And the fight was intense. And then it would die down for a while. And then it would start up again. And it went on for hours. So that's just a physically and emotionally draining. And at one point they knew that they were being overrun and they just thought that was it for them. They were going to die or they're going to be captured as prisoners. But then they got word that the Marines were approaching their position. So they made it through. And when Chris got home, he struggled with PTSD. He would wake up punching in the middle of the night. And if Taya had to get up in the middle of the night, she would have to wake him up before she got back into bed. Chris decided to end his leave early to go to sniper school, which ended up being just as hard as Bud's. The instructors put a lot of stress and pressure on you as much as they possibly could. And on top of that, you're running low on sleep. So it was hard. And Chris hated the water, but he knew it was part of his job. And so there was one night that he had to swim across the bay to plant a limpet mine on a ship in the dark. Swimming in the dark. And this was just a standard SEAL operation. So he's in the water and he feels something grab his fin. And it scared him, obviously, but then he was like, oh, you know, it's probably somebody messing with me. He had heard the stories about guys and SEALs messing with the guys diving. And so he turned around to flip off whoever was messing with him. But... He found himself flipping off a shark. So he grabbed his knife and he cut off his fin and that kept the shark happy. Kind of like a dog with a bone. While Chris swam to the surface to warn the other guys that there was a shark. During this time, Chris and Taya were ready to start a family. And so Taya got pregnant and the pregnancy went great, but the birth was pretty complicated Luckily, everything turned out fine, but the fact that Chris had to leave for Iraq soon put a dark cloud over the whole experience. Chris's chief had sent him to nav school, which ended up getting him sent to Iraq ahead of everyone else, which was in September of 2004, so that he could help as a navigator. And he loved it. They, they He wanted to be on duty. He wanted to be in war. This is what he signed up for, and he wanted to be a part of it. He collaborated with the Polish Grom fighters to raid apartment complexes that were suspected of harboring insurgents. 
Chris was sent to Fallujah to help out as a sniper, and it was really bad there. It was completely overrun with insurgents, and innocent civilians had to flee, otherwise they were just being killed off. The insurgents were kidnapping officials and their families. They were attacking American convoys and killing Iraqis who didn't share their same faith or political views. This wasn't just a Facebook fight. This was real life. This was life or death. During one particular battle, there was this big explosion and a wall came crashing down on Chris's legs, which temporarily pinned him into place, but he was able to kick the rubble off but it gave him a major injury. He was limping for a while, and eventually he would go on to have surgery on both of his knees because of this experience, this incident. One of the tricky parts of being a sniper is the fact that you cannot be afraid to take your shot, but if you take an unjustified shot, you could be charged with murder. So that's a scary line. Chris's standard was that he was not justified unless the person was in the act of doing something bad, And by that standard, he was averaging two to three people a day, shooting two to three people a day. That's how bad it was. What he was doing was so physically exhausting that during the six weeks he was there in Fallujah, he lost 20 pounds and he wasn't overweight. So that's a lot. There was an 18 year old kid who had been shot in the stomach while he was there and Chris ran to pull him out of the line of fire. But while he was pulling him, he fell backward and the kid kind of you know, fell on top of him because he was pulling him. And he just laid there in pure exhaustion. He just couldn't move. I mean, there's people shooting guns and like big guns, automatic weapons. And he's just laying there because he's so tired. And it became clear to him that the kid was going to die. And the last thing he said to Chris was, please don't tell my mama I died in pain. Oh, how heartbreaking is that? I hate that so much. That poor mama. Oh, I hate it. So these are the things that they're dealing with. And on top of that, you never know when you're next. You could go at any second. And it's, I mean, it's no wonder that training's so hard because look at the stuff that these guys see and deal with. It's even harder. It's really, really hard. Difficult. I can't imagine. I'm not, I would not, I'm not cut out for that. I, it blows my mind that there are people who go and want to do this. It takes a special person for sure. Back at home, Taya is basically a single mom to their new baby and she's pretty out of the loop. She doesn't know a ton about what's going on, but there was one night while Chris was on the phone with Taya that he told her he was back at base but he wasn't. He just didn't want her to worry. He was on an overwatch. And just a couple minutes into the conversation, somebody started firing at the building that he was in. He told her that he had to go. And then suddenly this rocket propelled grenade, also known as RPGs, hit the wall right outside of where he was. And he dropped the phone to return fire And when it all was said and done, he picked the phone up to call Taya back, but his battery had died, so he wasn't able to call her back for a few days. When he finally did, she just broke down crying because he had never hung up his phone. And so she heard the whole gunfight and didn't know if he was dead or alive. It was around this time that Chris started to gain a reputation as a sniper because he had a lot of confirmed 
kills. He was a really good sniper. Chris was getting ready to come home. His son was only 10 days old when he left. And now he was returning seven months later. So he missed a lot of his baby's infant. I mean, he's still an infant, but like he missed that newborn stage. But Taya was on cloud nine. She was so happy to have her husband back. Chris spent his time at home just bonding with his son, and it was such a joy for him. But the transition from war to home was a huge shock to his system because his PTSD was just so bad. And adjusting from living, I mean, you can imagine, adjusting from living in this literal war zone and going back to civilian life, it's got to be a lot. So Chris Chris started to shut himself in for a week at a time, and this is when he and Taya started to have problems. She felt a little shy with him at first when he came back because he'd been gone for so long, but and she kind of felt like she had to get to know him again. And Chris found that adding himself back into the family with a new baby led to some arguments because Taya really had essentially been a single mom, and she was forming these habits and getting to know her baby and what works for him and what doesn't. And so Chris coming in who, you know, has equal rights to his son, but he doesn't know kind of the ins and outs of their days. It was causing some arguments. Chris still liked to joke around a lot, but he had to grapple with being really hot headed at times now too. On the 4th of July of 2005, Chris was enjoying the day with his family, but he just had this overwhelming sadness that he couldn't shake because his friend and fellow SEAL, Marcus Luttrell, had gone missing, and he had heard through the grapevine that the three guys he was with were dead because they'd been ambushed by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and so it was likely that Marcus was one of them. After a few days, though, he got word that Marcus was found and he was alive. He was in bad shape, but he was going to be okay. And not long after leaving the hospital, Marcus actually deployed again. And so that was off off of Chris's chest and worries. His friend was okay. Chris's enlistment was coming up again, and Taya did not want him to re-enlist. It was, it was very stressful for her. She felt that a person's responsibility should be God, family, and country in that order. And Chris told her that he wouldn't re-enlist if she didn't want him to. But she's like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, if I did that, you would resent me. You would grow to resent me. And so he ended up re-enlisting. And to Taya, that meant that being a SEAL was more important to him than being a husband or a father. And so she was kind of struggling with that idea. And then she got pregnant with their second child, who would be a girl. And when she was 37 weeks along, she went in for a routine checkup. And they found that she was low on amniotic fluid and the cord was wrapped around the baby's neck. And so she and Chris went to to the hospital the next morning and Taya gave birth via C-section. And it was just two days before Chris had to leave on deployment again. So luckily the baby was fine. And it turns out, you know, Chris was able to be there for the birth. And so he leaves and Taya's struggling. She's just struggling while he's gone. Their son was only a year and a half old. 
and the new baby was very clingy and Taya was struggling with her thoughts about Chris, you know, thinking in her mind, thinking being a seal was more important than his family. And she was just, she was mad and she was worried and she was anxious and her C-section wasn't healing up well. And I'm sure it was from all the stress. And then back over with Chris, his day to day, between all the gunfights and the killings and bombings that were just a part of his everyday life, they stayed at Shark Base, which he described as a little oasis of rest and recreation. It had a stone floor and the windows were blocked by sandbags and it was small. Their cots touched each other, but they would go out for three days or so at a time and then they, they would come back to Shark Base for a day just to sleep and play video games call home, just kind of veg out before they had to go back out. And they had to be careful on their phone calls because operational security, also known as OPSEC, was critical and all conversations from the base were recorded. So they didn't really have any privacy there. There was this software that listened for keywords. And if enough of them came up, the conversation was pulled and you could get in trouble if you gave away too much info over the phone. So they had to be kind of secretive, which would be really hard, especially if you're on the phone with your wife and you can't give her all the info you want to. And they, they took it very seriously. There was somebody who did say too much and everyone was cut off for the week. They couldn't make calls for a week. One day while they were out, they set up a village near the main road and a small bongo truck careened from, from the town toward their house. And usually these trucks were used to carry equipment, but this one had four gunmen in the back. And as it drove by, it started shooting at Chris and his guys. So Chris shot the driver and the truck just kind of drifted to a stop. And the front seat passenger jumped out of the truck and he made a dash for the driver's side. But one of Chris's buddies shot him and then they just lit up the rest of the guys. They killed them all on the spot. Not too long after this event, Chris spotted a dump truck heading toward the main road and it turned into the driveway of this house and it started heading straight towards them and they knew it didn't belong there and they had experienced something like this. And so one of the guys on Chris's team, his name was Tony, shot the driver right in the head, which caused the truck to crash. Then a helicopter came in and it blew up because it had been filled with explosives. It's just insane. Every day. Every day is like this. I can't imagine. Chris became good friends with this guy. He was another sniper. His name was Ryan Joe. And one day, the two of them and one other guy were posted on an apartment building. And suddenly, they're being fired at. A bullet ricocheted off of Ryan's rifle and smashed into the side of his face. Chris thought he was... That was it. He thought he was going to die. And he had to witness his, his friend dying. And so they were able to get the, him into a vehicle, the three of them, and they went back to base and Ryan was airlifted out of there and Chris just lost it. He just sat there against the wall, bawling his eyes out. After Ryan had been shot, he passed out from the blood loss and his brain was selling with internal bleeding, but there was a bone or bullet fragments or something that were in his eye and it severed his optic nerves. And so he ended up living, but his eyesight was gone in both eyes and it, there was no chance of it ever being restored. Just after this, 
whole awful experience, they went back out and they were trying to find the guys who got Ryan and shoot them. They're bad guys. They headed into a house and there's this guy named Mark Lee who was the lead. And he was above them on some stairs looking out the window when he saw something. And as he turned to shout a warning to them, a bullet went right through his mouth and out the back of his head. And he just dropped to the ground like that. And so they were, they were done. They went back to base and they just took a break from it all. Two guys in such a short period of time, it was just devastating to them and they just needed a break. And Chris had seen a lot, but through the four years that he had been a SEAL, there was no SEAL that had ever died. And so this was a first and it was just devastating. And things were going to get worse before they got better. In September of 2006, while he was on the phone with Taya, Chris learned that their little girl was sick. And she's just little. She had been dealing with infections and jaundice for a while. And now they were finding that her white blood cell count was low. They thought she had leukemia, but they still had to test for it to be sure. So nothing was set in stone yet. But that's very worrisome. And there's a lot going on. Deployment was winding down, and as soon as Chris mentioned what was going on back at home to command, they began making travel arrangements right away to get him back home to be with his baby girl. So he finally gets home, and their daughter underwent some testing, and it came back to be good news. She did not have leukemia, and they were able to get whatever was making her sick under control. And then Chris learned that another one of his friends had been killed. His name was Mike Monsor, and the official summary of action said, quote, The grenade hit him in the chest and bounced onto the deck. He immediately, he immediately leapt to his feet and yelled grenade to alert his teammates of impending danger, but they couldn't evacuate the sniper hide site in time to escape harm. Without hesitation and showing no regard for his own life, he threw himself onto the grenade, smothering it to protect his teammates who were lying in close proximity the grenade detonated as he came down on top of it, mortally wounding him. Petty Officer Monsor's actions could not have been more selfless or clearly intentional. Of the three seals on that rooftop corner, he had the only avenue of escape away from the blast, and if he had so chosen, he could have easily escaped. Instead, Monsor chose to protect his comrades by the sacrifice of his own life. By his courageous and selfless actions, he saved the lives of his two fellow SEALs, end quote. Mike was awarded the Medal of Honor. Chris finally had surgery on his knees that he had injured. Remember that wall that fell on him? And after that, he had to go do this very rigorous five-month bout of physical therapy. And things with Taya were not great. There was a lot of unspoken tension between them and... Soon, Chris found himself texting an old girlfriend every day. And Taya caught wind of what was happening, and she just laid things out for him. She told him that she loved him, and she didn't want him to go, but that if that's what he wanted to do, he was free to do it. And he didn't want that. So they decided to set up some rules that they would both live by, and they agreed to go to counseling. His earlier reenlistment would be up in two years, and after some back and forth, Chris decided that he would not re-enlist. 
And it was a very tough decision for him because he felt like he had a duty to his country. He was just country first. He had trained for it. He was good at it. He was an asset to, to the country and he enjoyed it. But in the end, he had given a fair share of his life to his country and someone could take his place in the mil- in the military, but there's nobody who could take his place as a husband and father in his family. So he's still got two years left and he gets deployed again. And this time he's stationed in Seder City near Baghdad. And the unit's job is to fight this growing group of insurgents called Mahdi Army. Mahdi Army? I'm not sure how to say that. And work closely with the army forces while they build this concrete wall through the city. So Chris and his SEAL team clear houses that are suspected of harboring insurgents, which they've done before. And their first night there, while they're raiding a house, there's there are insurgents who are hiding in a house across the street. And they open fire on them. And then there's this huge bomb that goes off and throws Chris to the ground. And his head's bleeding. He realizes he's been shot in the back, but he's wearing body armor. Thank goodness. So the other SEALs call for backup and a fleet of army strikers take them back to base. And Chris survives this, but he can't help but feel like his luck is kind of running out. He's survived a lot of incidents and situations. Two days later, Chris and his team go back to that area with the strikers and they raid a factory nearby. And Chris uses this as a sniper post. And the next day, he sniped eight insurgents in just in one day. There are a ton of them. One of these bad guys had been carrying an RPG. And Chris was waiting for another insurgent to come and pick it up. But instead of an adult, there's this small child that one of them sent out. Because apparently they don't care about children. And Chris obviously wasn't going to hurt a kid. And that was just an experience that he recalls that stood out in his mind because that's crazy. Don't get kids involved. So a month goes by and this concrete wall is up. And during that month, Chris killed hundreds of insurgents. One of them was this guy who had an RPG aimed at him and the other SEALs. And even though he was 2,100 yards away, Chris was able to kill him in one shot and save all of them because that... RPG would have destroyed them. Chris says Seder City was the worst place he ever served. He applied for a transfer, but he learned that he'd been promoted to chief petty officer. And he didn't do well on the chief's exam, but his reputation as a, as a sniper is, is what got him this promotion. And he's not real excited about it at first because he likes being hands-on. But as he shifts into this new role, he finds himself reliving the moment that he was shot in Seder City. His PTSD is bad and it's causing sleep loss and a dangerously high blood pressure. It's just kind of wreaking havoc on his body. So the doctor recommends that he goes home early. And the tour was supposed to be over in a couple weeks anyway. So Chris is like, yeah, that, okay, I'll go home. So he gets back into the U.S. in August of 2008. And his enlistment was coming to an end. and But the Navy was just, they did not want to lose him. They were doing whatever they could to keep him. And he promised Taya that he wouldn't re-enlist. But when it came down to it, he was very, very tempted. But in the end, he decided that he was done. He was not going to re-enlist. So Chris keeps in touch with Ryan, 
the guy who lost his vision and Ryan ended up getting married to his, his girlfriend who stuck around during all of this. And, uh, and so Chris goes to their wedding and they, they all thought that she, his girlfriend would have left after what happened to him, but she stuck around. So they got married and Ryan had such a great sense of humor. He was optimistic. He didn't let this new disability slow him down. He graduated college with honors. He went and climbed a bunch of mountains, like notable mountains, like Mount Rainier and Mount Hood. And he completed a a triathlon and he went hunting all the time. And then in 2010, Ryan and his wife were expecting a baby. And meanwhile, while his wife was pregnant, the injuries that he sustained in Iraq needed more surgeries. So he went in to have this surgery done. And that afternoon, Chris got a call from their buddy, Marcus. And it turns out that Ryan had died during this surgery. And he never got to meet his baby girl. It's so sad. Now that Chris is out of the military, he has to find something to do. And so he decides to open a sniping school with an old friend named Mark Spicer. And it's called Craft International. And their slogan is, despite what your mama told you, violence does solve problems. Chris and Taya moved back to Texas from San Diego, and he continues to run his business there. And being with his kids helps him kind of break down those walls that he built up during the war. He builds this close bond to both of his kids. His daughter took just a little while to warm up to him, but she turned into a major daddy's girl And Chris teaches his son how to shoot just at two years old. They started with a BB gun. But his theory is is that if you don't satisfy a child's curiosity, you're asking for big problems. Chris and Taya went back and forth about how they would feel if their kids joined the military. And they came up with a lot of pros and cons. But Taya insists that Chris has done enough for this country. And she thinks it would be okay to skip a generation. But whatever they they choose whatever their kids choose they'll they'll be proud of them so things were going good at home but chris was having a tough time readjusting to civilian life he was feeling guilty about leaving the seals and he had a little bit of resentment built up towards taya for giving him an ultimatum so chris went into a depression and he started to drink a lot and it wasn't until he totaled his truck that he woke up and just saw where his life was headed if he didn't quit drinking so much. So he cut back on it and he got involved in helping veterans. He finds that wounded veterans don't need sympathy. They need to be treated like the men that they are. Equals. Heroes. And people with a lot of value for society. Chris finally gets to a place where he doesn't de- define himself as a SEAL anymore. He's a dad and a husband, and through all this, he rediscovered this deep love for his wife. And he knows he isn't the same guy he was before war, because in war, there's an innocence that's taken from a person. They had to get used to killing people like it's no big deal, and it is a big deal. That's not, like I said, that's not human nature. But Chris knew that he was doing it to protect protect his country and so he had a clear conscience. He believed that God would not hold him accountable for all the people that he killed during his lifetime because every person he shot was evil and the world was better without them. 
But he did have some regrets, and they were about the people that he couldn't save during the war. He felt like the biggest way war changed him was changing his perspective. He knows that there are bigger things than the little everyday problems we face as people, and so he doesn't stress about them. He's seen a bigger picture. The little things, the you know, guy that cuts you off on the road or dropping an egg and spilling it on the floor. It's just not a big deal to him. All in all, Chris served four tours of duty. He was awarded one silver star, three bronze stars of valor, two Navy Marine Corps achievement medals, and one Navy Marine Corps commendation. He wrote his book, American Sniper, which is about his life in service with the help of Jim Felice, which ended up becoming an international bestseller. And this led to TV appearances and speaking engagements, which allowed Chris to further his activities on behalf of veterans. And then the following year, in 2013, after he published American Sniper, he wrote a second book called American Gun, A History of the U.S. in Ten Firearms. And that was published. And then in early 2013, a lady who worked at Chris's kids' school knew about Chris and what he was doing with veterans, his work with veterans. And she asked him if he would help her son, Eddie. Eddie was a 25-year-old Marine vet, and he was suffering bad from PTSD. On top of that, he had been in and out of mental hospitals for two years or so, and and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So he's dealing with some, some serious big stuff. So Chris agrees to help him, and decided to take him to the gun range with his friend, Chad Littlefield, Chris's friend, Chad. So while they're there, Eddie's in his head and he ends up grabbing a gun and shooting both Chris and Chad. It killed them both just two months before Chris's 39th birthday. So he endured war and bombs and guns and being shot at and all sorts of things. And this happened and this is how he died he was murdered after eddie shot him he drove straight to his sister laura's house to tell her what he had done so she called 911 and while she was talking to him she's like he he's psychotic so they you know they tried to use the insanity plea but that didn't work and he was sentenced to life without parole there were almost seven thousand people that attended chris's memorial service which was held at the Cowboys Stadium in Dallas, Texas. Thank you to all those in the military for your service. We are so grateful for you. I know I speak on behalf of everybody in this country. We are so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being here and listening. If you're enjoying my stories, please give me a five-star review and subscribe. I just launched a website. You can find that at thestoryofpod.com. You can find me on Instagram. I actually just changed my my username on there because I think it was kind of confusing. That is also the story of pod. I'm on TikTok, the story of. I'm on YouTube, the story of. I will see you next week. Thank you for being here. I love you. Bye.